0: Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done.
1: From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow.
2: I'm Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York.
0: And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology.
2: Coming up, we'll give you the key takeaways from Apple's scary fast unveil, which featured new chips, laptops and much more.
0: Plus, we'll speak to an AI advisor to the White House as President Biden takes the most significant step to date in regulating artificial intelligence technology.
2: Meanwhile, Nvidia, it dips below $1 trillion today as concerns linger over U.S. curbs on China and how that may impact billions of dollars of existing orders. We'll have that and so much more. But first, let's just check in on these markets. It is the end of the month. We all know there's plenty of candy being eyed for the day. But it is the end of October. And it was down, 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 if you see for the really, the Nasdaq currently off by some 3.3% end the month. But it's the third straight month of losses, as we see for some of the key big benchmarks across the U.S. at the moment, Ed. And that as we worry about earnings, we worry about, of course, geopolitics as well. This is the worst, therefore, three-month loss, set of three-month losses that we've seen since back in what, June of 2022. Overall, though, this isn't as bad as September was. Let's move it on to some of the uh, other benchmarks that we're keeping an eye on. I'm looking at the NASDAQ 100. On the day, basically flat. We're just pushing off of those lows for the day. But the 10-year yield is coming down a little bit. So we've got a little bit of buying ahead of the all-important Fed meeting that comes tomorrow and, of course, how much the Treasury Department will actually be issuing in new debt. We've got a little bit of a bid, but we're seeing the dollar having a big bid against the Japanese yen. This is the key macro story of the day, really. The fact that the Bank of Japan was was not going to be changing any of those yields curve controls, but get into the micro, particularly the tech-focused micro Ed
0: yeah. And earnings is still a story. Pinterest, a real surprise, up more than 18 percent on track for its biggest jump since August of 2022. Top and bottom line beat, but a record monthly active user base. We will get a key analyst conversation later in the show on that name. Tesla's moving to the upside modestly, four tenths of one percent, but it's kind of rebounding from this slump since October 18th and earnings where it's down more than 20 percent. There's a lot of concern about interest rates and how that's impacting EV demand. We will have that conversation later in the program and on semi we had the ceo on the show 24 hours ago a, a tepid forecast for the fourth quarter a mystery oem customer they wouldn't name that dragged down results and the stock a second day of pressure there. The key name that we're looking, keeping it real this Halloween, is Apple. Their mm-hmm. scary fast event. We got what we expected because of Bloomberg's Mark Gurman and his reporting. An iMac, a trio of MacBook Pros, and the first volume maker of PCs with a 3 nanometer processor, the M3, M3 Pro, and M3 Max chip. What does this mean? Does it put the Mac back on track? Well, joining us now is Carolina Milanesi, Creative Strategies President and Principal Analyst listen you just heard me Carolina does this put the MacBook back on track
3: I think it certainly puts Mac and ARM back on track. I think coming out of the Snapdragon Qualcomm event last week and seeing what they're able to do with their platform and now having uh, Apple with the N3 clearly puts the ARM architecture as a whole in a much better place compared to Intel and x86. So I, I think that's what we're looking at and the excitement around what this opportunity brings to the PC market. What did you make of the price points, Carolina? It was very interesting to see that the entry-level MacBook Pro was dropped in price. This is the, the one that, together with the MacBook Air, has been the volume maker and one that now at a lower price of 1599 starting point, is going to really worry the PC OEMs. Um, you know, the power that Apple has to convince people that now that they own everything from the silicon to the hardware to the software, and Tim Cook pointed to that in the event yesterday is really reassuring customers that basically they're buying something that is in full control of, of Apple and not like before at the mercy
2: of uh, Intel uh, Silicon. It really was Apple Silicon that was the selling point here. Carolina, is that enough to drive significant well, desire to be buying in, particularly as we head towards the holidays, do you think? Well, I think if the
3: silicon doesn't convince you, the black color will. Yeah. <laughs> there was a lot of assignment on the, the black um, color for the higher-end SKU of the uh, MacBook Pro. And I think that where Apple is pointing is really at upgrading current Intel-based Mac owners and then M1 owners to really get into uh, the the newest and, and fastest of their silicon um, product based But it, you know, from, a, from a, um, a holiday perspective, we are still in a tough economic environment, uh, and that needs to be uh, reconciled with. We are looking at also enterprise, not only consumers for Apple though. And so there's definitely more opportunity there as we get into the new year.
0: Uh, by the way, Caroline and Carolina, The entire (laughs) event, according to a blog post that Apple posted six minutes ago, was shot on an iPhone 15 Pro Max, the entire thing. And it was edited on Mac, so they're trying to flex their their product line across the board. What I think is interesting, Carolina, is how they compare the performance of M3, and there's kind of an arc, right? M3, M3 Pro, and M3 Max, relative to M1, but also Intel, right? The top tier MacBook Pro, they said, was 11 times faster than the most powerful Intel Power PC. So who are they going after here, right? Are they going after just the high end PC market, Intel? You know, users that want an upgrade or are they just trying to keep refreshing those existing installed base of Apple devices?
3: Both. It is really trying to capture market share in the higher end of a PC market, uh, getting as many people as possible off of Intel so that they can experience that higher um, seamless workflows that Comes from owning all the pieces of the equation uh, and continue to then upgrade from there. Um, I, I do think that, as you said, there's a lot of flex there on, um, they had actually footnotes at the end of the event about being shot on iPhone uh, and uh, uh, edited on Mac, so they are uh, really talking to creators. By the same time, without ever mentioning Gen AI, they mm-hmm. were talking mm-hmm. to AI developers 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 to very high demanding workflows. So there's definitely an attention there to where the conversation is today.
0: Carolina Milanese of Creative Strategies. Great to catch up here on Bloomberg Technology. Thank you. Another Apple story that we've been tracking. The company could be forced to scale back its app store fees for developers after one of the EU's antitrust watchdogs said its commissions violate the bloc's rules. The Dutch Authority for Consumers and Markets ruled that Apple's commission on certain app subscriptions are an abuse of the company's market power. Caro
2: ongoing with the dutch agency meanwhile let's talk about pinterest shares absolutely rallying today after reporting sales that beat expectations amid of course the push by the company to make the platform basically more, more shoppable tom forte da davidson senior research analyst is with us and i mean boy you had a buy rating you reiterated this is the best day for the stock since three years ago tom
4: yeah, they certainly delivered the treats at uh, Pinterest ahead of Halloween. So what you're seeing is the company's making it uh, easier for advertisers to prove that they're able to get conversion or sales off of their platform. This is having a huge positive impact to their revenue. You're seeing accelerating revenue top-line growth, and at the te- same time, like other big tech companies, they have very much you know belt tightening going on, uh, managing expenses. So the combination of accelerating revenue growth with belt tightening is tremendous
0: uh, revenue and tremendous earnings. What was interesting, Tom, was monthly active users hit a record, or another way of looking at it is they eclipse their pandemic peak. What was the more important metric for you, that monthly active user number or the financials where they beat top and bottom line?
4: What's very important on the monthly active users is they're generating a uh, Gen Z interest. So when you think about uh, having more engagement than they had in the early stages of the pandemic, that's wonderful. How are they able to do it? So they stopped trying to be TikTok. Uh, you've seen Meta Platforms and others basically come up with Me Too products to, to uh, you know, stay on parity with TikTok. And they leaned into what made Pinterest unique and what made Pinterest special. And that's driven use in Gen Z. And it's had a halo effect to the extent that the Gen Z is posting content that other generations
0: are liking as well. So very impressive engagement growth for Pinterest. Tom, help us out with this one. The CFO is saying that the investments they've made are increasing shopability. What, what is that? What does that mean?
4: The, the simple way to think about it is they have a third party advertising initiative with Amazon. So let's say you went to Pinterest and did a search for a green dress. Uh, among the many uh, pictures you would see would be Items from Amazon, you could then click on those items and buy those items. So think about, it. in the past, you would see wonderful pictures on Pinterest, but it wasn't always easy, not easy to buy the sofa, not easy to buy the apparel. Uh, they made it a lot easier. That's improved the shopability of Pinterest.
2: I mean, that's really what Bill Reddy's been saying since he's come on board a little over a year ago. It's about people come to Pinterest with intent, so clearly advertisers are seeing that for now. Tom Forte, great to have some time with you. Thank you, DA Davison there.
4: One thing is clear. To realize the promise of AI and avoid the risk, we need to govern this technology. We face a genuine inflection point in history one of those moments where the decisions we make in the very near term are going to set the course for the next decades.
2: President Biden there, after signing an executive order on artificial intelligence, the most significant step to date in regulating the technology. Joining us for more on all of this is Dr. Joy bollam founder of the Algorithmic Justice League and author of Unmasking AI, My Mission to Protect What is Human in a World of Machines. It's published today. Congratulations for spending some time with us as well. It's great to have you here equitable and accountable AI. That's all about
5: what your Algorithmic Justice League is about. Does this EO get us there in some way? Absolutely. I will actually say this is a commendable step forward. And part of this is because the E. Oh, that's been issued includes teeth when it comes to government agencies using AI. So once you're tying federal dollars to who can uh, procure particular systems, then we're actually starting to see something that's going to compel change. So I am excited to see the civil rights pieces uh, within this EO. It's interesting. You talk about teeth and there's sort of the carrot
2: teeth situation the U.S. is using. There's the teeth of fines, the EU AI Act has been talking about everyone wants in on this pie of regulation or talking about it. We've got the UK AI Summit about to happen. One of the critiques of that AI Summit is there's not enough actual people from civil society at that summit. How much do you think the US and and lawmakers are engaging with civil society on this?
5: I think that is a fair critique. I am glad to share that a member of the Algorithmic Justice League will be there. But when we look at the overall roster, we don't want the tech companies writing the regulation. And so I certainly think there is more work to be done. And I also do think it's a good step forward to have the AI Safety Summit at this time.
0: Dr. Joy, the main mechanism or tool that the executive order puts in place is big technology companies having to hand over an LLM or foundation model Uh, for safety review before it is released to the wider public. Just explain how you think that will work um, as a safeguard as we develop next generations of large language models.
5: I think it could go one of two ways. If you actually have the companies themselves setting what the safety measures are and what the safety test will be, we'll have a situation of grading your own homework, which I don't necessarily think is going to get us where we want to go. If it is a situation where you actually have third parties that are establishing what the standards are and the guidelines are, then I think you actually have a situation where the companies will have to meet specific regulations that they themselves are not setting. So it remains to be seen. I am cautiously uh, optimistic. But companies cannot be grading their own homework and then turning the exact- it
0: in. Sorry to interrupt you. The executive order kind of gives power to the agencies. 24 hours ago, we had um, Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford on the show, and she basically said, I want to see a more even distribution of funding and control across academia, industry, and the public sector. Where do you stand on that balance of who is working on AI and who has the power to regulate it?
5: I think I would give more power uh, to the government and then to companies, but I do think it's commendable to see increased AI capacity for academics. As we know, a lot of the compute power and a lot of the data access does go mainly to the large tech companies. So it does make it difficult for researchers and outsiders to even have a sense of how to assess the risk if you don't have that access. So that's a good step forward. Your whole MIT thesis methodology
2: basically showed the level of bias, whether it comes racial or gender within sort of AI services from certain companies in the US. You are going out on your book tour and talking to some of the most notable names in technology, Sam Altman, for example, being one of them. How much they wanted to engage with you? How much have they been trying to, well, improve their homework before turning it in and having someone else mark it?
5: I think it's a mixed bag. I will say for OpenAI, they have reached out to the Algorithmic Justice League multiple times and when they had their uh, bug bounty uh, program to try to look at AI vulnerabilities, they w- mentioned one of our white papers and so forth. So I think there is a good faith effort to reach out, but I certainly don't think it's enough. And we certainly have uh, different views. For, for example, how do you uh, credit and compensate artists? I do think many Many companies have gotten a free pass on building LLMs with data that's been collected without consent and without compensation. You yourself being an artist, a poet, not only just researcher and policy guidance, it's important.
2: Rate the media for a minute. Because I think there is this desire sometimes to go for the biggest headline, which often is, you know, Terminator style, AI is going to end us all. But much of the criticism has been, look, in the here and the now, we need to tackle the bias in the real data, the application where we are today. Are we managing to move away from hyperbole and get to actually what really is the risk when it comes to AI?
5: It depends on the outlet, right? And so I commend um, news outlets that actually bring in voices like the Algorithmic Justice League, CDT, and others. So we're getting a different perspective. But I still think there is a lot of fear mongering and doomerism. And that's one of the concerns I have even with the framing of the AI safety uh, summit. And so I certainly want to make sure we are focused on immediate and emerging harms. It's not to say we don't want to be forward-looking, but we don't want to be so distracted that we don't attend to the things we already know how to address.
0: Dr. Joy Bolanwini, founder of the Algorithmic Justice League. Great to have you here on Bloomberg Technology. Thank you so much. Now, coming up on the program, NVIDIA shares taking a hit today on reports that may have to cancel billions of dollars' worth of advanced chip sales to China. More on how those new U.S. export rules are putting the company in a state of limbo. The stock down about 1%, more than 2% in the session. This is Bloomberg Technology.
5: OK,
0: it's time for talking tech. And first up, Vodafone is agreeing to sell its Spanish unit to Zagonda Communications. The deal is said to be valued at roughly $5.3 billion, including debt. The European Commission is currently examining that deal, which would shift the telecommunications and open the door to more consolidation across Europe. And Bungie, the Sony-owned game studio, behind the popular Destiny 2 franchise, has let go of an undisclosed number of its workforce. This comes after Bungie delayed the upcoming expansion of Destiny 2 pushing it out of Sony's current fiscal year. The move is part of a wider restructuring at the company and reflects a recent bout of layoffs across the gaming industry. Plus, Samsung is seeing encouraging signs of recovery in the chips market after reporting profit for the third quarter, which was well ahead of estimates. The South Korean giant raked in more than $4 billion of net income in the September quarter, more than double What was expected? Executives say that artificial intelligence is driving demand and it plans increased spending on advanced chip making. Caroline.
2: Meanwhile, Ed, let's look at the fresh U.S. curbs on the advanced chip making that's going on to China. They're presenting a new risk to Nvidia, we understand. Now, a deep uh, dip in the shares that you currently see has pushed the market value currently just below that one trillion dollar mark. So, all after the Wall Street Journal reported, well, well, that potentially Nvidia might have to cancel five billion dollars worth of sales to China. We're pleased to welcome Kunjan Subhani, he's Bloomberg Intelligence analyst covering all things semiconductors, and was this in some way? obvious that they were going to have to pull back from selling China sooner than some had anticipated?
7: Yeah, I mean, the the cancellation of the grace periods was definitely a surprise for them. Um, And we think now it is, the restrictions have reached a point where this does start having some long-term impacts. So when we look at long-term impacts uh, next year, which is fiscal 25, which is equivalent to calendar 24 for them, uh, you know, we estimate about five to eight billion that they would have shipped to China. So you can put a five billion threshold baseline impact that it will have to the top line. However, there are some avenues we think where NVIDIA can offset that loss, one being shipping to other customers right. outside of China because they are still, as of right now, and things can change given the uncertain macro, there are still, but there is still demand for NVIDIA chips. And second, uh, there might be ways that NVIDIA can still get exposure to the Chinese market through alternate m- means.
0: What, what we're talking about, in the AI chip context is GPUs that are basically assemble components that go into data centers. And for China, that's always been 20 to 25% of its data center business, right? But they're supply constrained and they never talk about it. Is it just simply that they can sell to other nations, other startups around the world the same product that they would have otherwise sent to China?
7: Well, not exactly the same product, but a version of the same product, yes. And then the second key point is uh, when we look at these cloud providers, their CapEx is not only the only avenue that NVIDIA can get exposure. For example, Microsoft has a compute offload through OpenAI. So when we look at Microsoft CapEx, that's not the only piece that NVIDIA gets, but also through OpenAI. Uh, You have the same thing going on with Alibaba announcing that they are going to offer Meta's large language model. So there are still different
0: avenues that sort of NVIDIA can get an indirect exposure to the Chinese market. Kunjan Sabani of Bloomberg Intelligence, the other Mr. Chip out here in San Francisco, Caroline.
2: Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hand in New York.
0: And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. Let's get to check on European markets which have just closed. All this week we'll bring you the European market close and the Stock 600 Europe, kind of this... Continent-wide gauge of equities rising for a second straight day, but we're ending the month of October, and this has been the worst October going back to 2004. European stocks—a bright spot was Stellantis and their earnings. That stock in its European trading up 3.6%. Oil rebounding modestly. Brent, which is kind of more of the global benchmark as opposed to WTI, had been moving lower Monday over the weekend due to the activity in the Israel-Hamas war. Rebounding modestly, four tenths of one percent in euro-dollar. 105.62 softer the euro by half a percentage point against the dollar caroline
2: tell you also what's a little bit softer today has been the Nasdaq and the Nasdaq 100 and we're down by another tenth of a percent but actually all told on the month of October we're down more than three percent not as bad as it was the five percent sell-off back in September but it's three straight months of losses for the Nasdaq at the moment worse instead of losing streaks since we've seen all the way back to of course about June of last year so clearly pressure is on some of these big tech names amid earnings a bit amid these geopolitical stories that you talk us through Ed looking at NVIDIA of course we're just talking about the geopolitics there the sales into China and the issue with, well, maybe not being able to put some of those orders through to that country. So stock under pressure there. Interestingly, Tesla up, what, about a tenth of a percent, two tenths of a percent, let's call it. What a painful two weeks it's been though, Ed. Do you see the story at what, $145 billion wiped off in terms of its market capitalization over the course of those two weeks. In large part, Ed, that does seem to be in some way to do with its earnings.
0: Yeah, I think if we go back to October 18th when they reported earnings until this point, we're down 20% on Tesla's shares. The other way of looking at it, though, is that Tesla's up more than 60% year to date, while the S&P 500 is up much more modestly. But the concern is interest rates. You know, Elon Musk talking about the impact of interest rates, and they've used price cuts earlier in the year to unlock demand. How much do we put emphasis on high-rate environment, hurting consumers, hitting that EV demand? But yeah, that's a pretty telling chart, isn't it? The story, at least in the last two weeks, has changed, though we're a little modestly higher this Tuesday.
2: And it has been interesting, hasn't it, ultimately, that they've had pressure from China as well, BYD. But I don't know if you noticed overall that there was, of course, well, the idea that we're going to be seeing Elon Musk flying over to the UK. I think he's actually just touched down. This is all about not Tesla, but artificial intelligence, which, of course, is a long-term theme for Tesla.
0: Yeah, it is a long-term theme because the ultimate business model is to have a fleet of robo-taxis, which are Tesla vehicles centrally controlled by Tesla. The training of that is done on Dojo, their supercomputer, and the neural network they're building is their version of AI, which they have high degree of confidence on. And AI is really top of mind for Mr. Musk right now.
2: It certainly is, as he touched down for the UK AI Summit. And, of course, all things AI have just been happening right here in the United States with that executive order as well. Let's speak to someone who's been there, helping craft what an EO might look like with the president. You were at the signing of the executive order, Credo AI CEO Navrina Singh. Navrina, really important to have some time with you today because you're in the business of governance, governance of AI systems. Ultimately, this executive order, I feel, leaves a lot still yet to be ironed out. Now, when it comes to actual guardrails, actual benchmarks, actual, well, really auditing, how do you
8: see this EO doing? Thank you so much for having me uh, here today. It truly is a historic moment and I am reporting here live from DC. Uh, You know, this executive order was one of the most comprehensive and expansive commitments to responsible AI that we've seen from the federal government. And something that I've stated in the past is we need to be okay with adaptive policymaking and that's what exactly what we are seeing at this moment in time. This EO is so comprehensive. Uh, I've barely made it through half of it right now, but this is a strong signal from the government that now it is not about just talking about responsible AI, but making sure that not only the US agencies, but also private sector is showing success against what those guardrails are. So Carolyn, absolutely, this is a starting point. There's a lot to unpack in this executive order, uh, but I think we're going to see ripple effects across the world uh, with this historic uh, executive order from the president and the vice president.
0: Navrina, of the 50% of the extensive EO that you have read, what's your biggest criticism of, of the final form? Where would you have liked to have seen the administration do more?
8: So Ed, I think this goes back to we always want more, and especially as technologists, we want it to be precise. But I think let's focus on what is so great about the EO. I think this EO, think about it as not a rule of the law, but this is a work plan that is providing a very compressed timeline for U.S. agencies as well as the private sector to start not only defining what does good look like in terms of benchmarking and evaluation of these powerful AI systems, but also holding them accountable in a very short time frame to come up with a game plan as to how we are going to make sure that that whatever is defined as good is actually adhered to. So two things that I would like to call out in the EO that we are very excited about is first and foremost uh, you know creation of Standards uh, led by NIST, especially for benchmarking and auditing of artificial intelligence systems, uh, we have about you know 270 days uh, for NIST to actually start building a game plan for that. And then, secondly, the United States government agencies, uh, you know, we are looking for the OMB guidance, which is going to come out any day, which is going to put further focus on how procurement of AI systems by U.S. government and the agencies happen. So. I I would say that right now we should be focusing on all the great things that are in this EO. And then, yes, there's lots more work ahead of us. And we're going to continuously see uh, over the coming months more and more getting defined in terms of what is really possible. NIST being the National
2: Standards Strategy for Critical and Emerging Technology. Navrina, I'm interested that they're setting basically benchmarks guidelines. Your company already is kind of a private sector addition that could be taken, have you suddenly got a load of inbound from this? Because
8: what well, you're helping companies basically build AI accountably. Yes, Carolyn. So Credo AI is an AI governance platform that provides continuous oversight and accountability of artificial intelligence systems. I would say not only because of this executive action, but the need for trust, which is so critical as companies are adopting, building, using artificial intelligence at scale, that has really propelled and increased uh, the need for Credo AI in the market as well. And I think just to underscore in Credo AI, we are operationalizing what does good look like. These might come from standards like NIST AI RMF, ISO standards. It could come from regulations like New York City Law Number 144. It can come from company policies or industry best practices. And Credo AI already has been at the front of it. So now I would say the companies as well as U.S. government agencies are really requiring Credo AI as a core platform that's going to enable trust. Uh, with their consumers.
0: Navrina, in that light and and in in, in pursuit of a range of views, I want to ask you the same question I've asked all our guests in the last 24 hours. The main mechanism that the EO spells out, and, and the Defense Procurement Act empowers them to do, is to require makers of large language models to offer them up for government safety review before they are released to the wider public. If a a startup's building an LLM, is that a good mechanism? Will that help the industry move forward?
8: I think, that's a great question. I am concerned about regulatory capture. uh, And I think we have to really focus on how do we bring this entire startup innovation ecosystem forward, and something that we are actively focused on at Credo AI, where executive orders as well as regulations are not a barrier for startups, especially not the well-capitalized startups, but it's an enabler for them. Uh, So in terms of that, what the EO is spelling out uh, that the foundation model providers have to provide test results to the government before releasing these models, um, especially for government use. I think it's a good step, but it's not comprehensive. And this is where I am encouraged to see more action in the coming months, where we are going to provide that oversight as well as benchmarking and testing requirements across the entire value chain. The foundation model developers, the application developers, the enterprises, and the consumers. So you know, that's the ripple effect of this executive order that I'm really excited to see coming in the few months. Avrina Singh, Credo
2: AI CEO. Thanks for making time with us after, of course, you were at that White House event. And of course, one of the things the executive order has discussed is well, watermarking, being able to understand when something is fake or indeed created by AI. Well, we're going to talk about investing in watermarking when it comes to the art world. VC Spotlight's up next. Christie's Ventures Global Head, Devang Thacker, is going to be joining us on its portfolio expansion. This is Bloomberg Technology.
6: Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's stife com.
5: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
2: Ventures Spotlight, we're going to sort of fuse art and VC with Christie's Ventures. It, of course, held its seventh edition of Art and Tech Summit just earlier this year, announcing a fair few investments. Manifold Technologies, Layer Zero Labs, for example, ProtoHologram. Today, Christie's Ventures is back expanding its portfolio, adding Ecomark and Atomic Form. Global head, Devang Thacker, joins us now. I think from rather late in Hong Kong, where you're on the road speaking to well companies building things. Devang, talk to us about some of these investments. What is the thesis behind Christie's Ventures? Where are you backing? It looks as though you're backing sort of authenticity and it's a large part we talk about that with AI at the moment.
9: Uh, Thank you for having me back, Carol and and Ed, uh, and hello from Hong Kong. Uh, For us, like we take a very principled approach on investing. As we mentioned last time, we are early stage investors. We only invest in seed and series A companies. And Echomark for us is one of those personally very near and dear to my heart, company based in Seattle, Washington, that is looking to create deterrence technology by adding invisible watermarks and AI-based watermarks, something that you just discussed with your prior panelists, into documents to deter people from leaking them, whether it's the Supreme Court leak that we saw a few few, uh, quarters ago, or more recently things we've seen from other corporate as well as government branches, leaks are a big, problem and EchoMark is attempting to use state of the art technology to solve them so that even if you take a picture with your phone of a little corner of a document, we're able to sort of detect that and catch who leaked the document. And EchoMark just raised series uh, seed in collaboration with Craft Ventures and Chris is proud to, to be part of that round. So for us, we see this technology applying directly to our business because we have some of the most sensitive client information in our business globally, right? And who uh, has right. what art and who is looking to buy and sell what art. So for us, this is
0: critical data to protect. Well, Devang, that's what caught my eye and and what's interesting about Echomark, that Christie's auction house was one of the first users of the Echomark technology. It came out of stealth like a month ago. Mm -hmm. Just in very simple terms, explain how the auction house uses it with its client communications as a case study.
9: Yeah, no, absolutely. So take the example of a a deal term and say you have a a piece of art which is iconic and, and very expensive and it's based in uh, say, some part of well world in, in your home in Hong Kong, for example. The, the terms of that deal often are exchanged in PDFs and email attachments. Those could accidentally or non-accidentally leak to the public. Echomark allows us to create another layer of protection so that the document is personalized for the recipient. So if you, as a recipient, get this document and accidentally leak it or maliciously leak it, we can immediately know where the source of the leak comes from. So that deters people from taking some malicious activity against sensitive data. So that's the prototype, or that's the the first use case that we're working on. But I think the implications of this are widespread. We can see that applying to all forms of communication, including this call that we're having could also have invisible marks so that if I took a screenshot or a picture from my phone and leaked the conversation that we were having, I could immediately get caught. So the yeah. implications of what Echomark is building are deeply rooted in, in in sort of better stewardship of documents. And that's where we're using it in our, our business.
2: It's interesting that your other investment, Atomic Form, is still a back on Web3, is still a back on mm-hmm. non-fungible tokens. Of course, I think back to the Beeple $69 million auction that made sort of put NFTs on the map with Christie's. Why still mm-hmm. support this ecosystem when so many people question?
9: You know, great question. We even first met Atomic Form very early in the days of, of NFTs as a company that provided beautiful displays for this piece, these pieces of digital art. I think my belief is that in the long run, NFTs, other sort of nomenclature, whatever you want to call it. In the end, it's all digital art. And what we've seen through the progression of Christie's 3.0 and the investments we've made there, digital art is here to stay. That's just our, our belief. The the bit that interested us in Atomic Form is in addition to the hardware bit, they're also a great software company, which I believe in software as a business model, uh, as a scalable business model. So traditional in traditional businesses, if you take comics books, for example, or comic books, for example, there's a rating system, right? When you go into a comic book store, you can see a, a blue box that says the six star, seven star. No one's doing that for digital assets. So Atomic Form is one of those companies that's doing innovative things with software, whether it's ratings, whether it's applying physical activation data back to the blockchain. For example, if I loaned you an NFT, that happens in a physical world at MoMA, for example, that doesn't get captured back into the NFT itself. This company is sort of adding that metadata back to the NFT, really connecting the, the Web 2 and Web 3 worlds. And we believe that whether it's Web 3 in its current iteration or Web 3 with AI augmented, we're going to live in a very fast and connected
0: universe where companies like this are going to be very important, hence the support. All right, Devang Thakkar of Christie's Ventures, searching for startups out in Hong Kong. Thank you for joining us here. The platform formerly known as Twitter is worth less than half of what Elon Musk paid for it just a year ago when he bought the company for $44 billion. According to a Bloomberg source, restricted stock units awarded to employees value the company at $19 billion based on RSUs of $45 apiece. Joining us here in SF, Bloomberg's Asia Accounts, you and I reported this story together, and part of it is a drop-off in sales, part of it is the debt burden, and part of it is that this is a work in progress, shall we say.
10: It's so many things. It's all the things that you just mentioned, right? I mean, that's such a steep drop in valuation. Part of it is the advertising revenue. In September, it was down 60%. And you think about advertising revenue historically for X has been 80, 90% of the revenue. So that's already huge, as you mentioned. And then you have $13 billion of debt. So now you have to pay $1.2 billion in interest every year. So you add all that up and and they're in a really tough spot financially. And so it sort of makes sense that the valuation is so low.
0: The other thing we reported in the last week or so is like, what the end result might look like. Elon Musk saying we're going after LinkedIn and we're going after YouTube in this all hands of employees. What does that tell us about
10: what X might be in the future? It's that everything app idea, right, that Elon has talked about over and over again. But it could be interesting if, if it sort of turns out that way, right? It's the idea of being able to do things like audio and video calling. You mentioned LinkedIn, so they have a hiring service, doing more video, aka YouTube, and then even having a wire service that they're, they're planning to launch for, for PR. So So it could be all those things.
0: And the lesson learned of covering Tesla and SpaceX for the last six years is don't discount Elon Musk because they've been highly successful. But Rocky Adventures, Bloomberg's Asia Counts, thank you. Caro?
2: Yeah, and they're betting big maybe on being a payments focus as well. Let's go back to the world of fintech. FTX co-founder Sam bankman fried just finished testifying in his criminal fraud trial today. Bloomberg's Max Chafkin, who was actually in the court queuing for hours in the rain. You join us for the latest. And I mean... He was trying to convince that he didn't know as much as he should have known.
11: Yes. Uh, and and this testimony has been going on since Friday. We've seen two and a half days of Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, essentially the defense trying to paint a picture of a well-meaning but perhaps slightly out of touch executive, someone with competence and, and at least a rough understanding of his responsibilities. Um, what we saw from the prosecution was kind of a methodical portrayal of Sam Bankman-Fried essentially a professional liar. We saw repeated instances or accusations of of deception, deceit, as well as a refusal by by the defendant to sort of admit to any of it. And and as it played out in court, uh, particularly yesterday and this morning, um, it, it, it was tough. It was tough, perhaps less
2: tough, obviously, under friendly fire from defense. Then when it came to the prosecutors, did he lose his ground somewhat? What was the demeanor of him in court?
11: Uh, His demeanor was extremely subdued, Uh, you know, very, very, his voice seemed smaller than it had, and as I was watching this, I just kept thinking about the way that this performance was playing, you know, during the rise of FTX, when we had crypto soaring, and we we saw him as this kind of genius guy who who, who was part of this, like, soaring movement. As things have fallen apart, that affect has not worked as well, and we've seen somebody who has seemed, even, even when under questioning from his own lawyers, somewhat out of his depth. And then, you know, under fire from a a very adept federal prosecutor, you know, it only got worse. So
0: now is this story of psychology and process, because the government could call two other witnesses, and, and it's about the lasting impression of the jury. What do you reckon, Max? Where does this go from here?
11: Well, the government has rested its case. In fact, they were—they had okay. uh, talked about a, a rebuttal case, uh, but but that is not going to happen. They—they they, uh, it seems feel confident um, with the case they presented, which, as we've talked about on this show before, um, it's been pretty comprehensive. We've seen um, multiple close friends, former colleagues of Sam Bankman-Fried uh, testify to, to financial crimes, as well as you know a a not especially inspiring performance by the defendant. On the other hand, you know, this is a complicated case, seven counts, uh, the, 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 the business FTX was in has a lot of financial nuance, so you, you never know how it's going to play with a jury, and, and we're just going to have to wait and see. Uh, I, I think it's possible the jury can get the case as early as tomorrow, um, certainly some point this week.
2: We wait we watch, we thank you for standing out in the cold and getting inside that courtroom for us, Max Trafkin. And do go see Ruin as well, which she's currently in the original's piece on the undoing of FTX. But that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology, yeah?
0: Yeah, thanks to everyone that's been tuning into the podcast. We had some pretty deep conversations around AI today. So recap the show, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, iHeart. And of course, we publish the podcast to all of the Bloomberg platforms as well. Two days in, mega week ahead from San Francisco in New York City. This is Bloomberg Technology.